Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Jude. Uh, today we are in week two of our sermon series that we have simply called Standing Firm, where we are working verse by verse uh, through the letter of Jude. Uh, Jude was written uh, by a man whose name, uh, you guessed it, uh, was Jude. Uh, he was the brother of James, uh, who was one of the leaders of the early church. And more significantly, uh, we know that he was the younger half-brother of Jesus. And while Jude was a very short letter, uh, what I believe we've already seen, even this past week, week one of this series, is that it is so rich in its content, particularly in how it points to God's sustaining grace. Well, uh, last week, we kicked off this series by working through the identity of a follower of Jesus. And ultimately, what we discovered was that for those uh, who have put their faith in Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, uh, then you have been graciously called by God. Uh, you are loved by God the Father, and you are being kept by God for his Son, Jesus Christ. And because those things are true, what we also said is that for those who are in Christ, uh, we have an abundance of mercy, love, and peace given to us by the Father. Uh, it's so encouraging, verses 1 through 2. Uh, well, anyway, that's the identity of a Christian and what God has done and what God is doing. And then from that understanding, Jude goes on to set the theme for the rest of this letter. And that's going to be our focus today. Uh, we have a lot to cover, so let's read the text together. And then we're going to jump into these verses. We're going to be in Jude, uh, verses 3 through 4 today. So why don't you read it along with me. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude begins this letter here, uh, or the thrust of this letter here by sharing this really deep care and concern. He calls those who are reading this letter, the believers, he calls them beloved. He has told them just before this uh, that they were much loved by God, but now he reminds them of how much he loves them as well. Uh, he shows a true shepherd's heart here. These are very purposeful words. And it's interesting, uh, what we discover here is that this was not the letter that Jude originally intended to write. Uh, that at first, he was very eager to write to them about their common salvation. That is, he wanted to write to them uh, with the purpose of celebrating the good news of the gospel. He wanted to joyfully speak about the good news of who Jesus is and, and what Jesus had done for them. But he says, uh, I could not write about that. That apparently, from the context here, apparently somehow Jude found out that the gospel message was being compromised. That, that the gospel message was being 
being threatened by false teaching. And, and of course, we know that's a very serious thing. It's, it's a very pressing matter. And so to that, he writes, it was necessary instead, though I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, though I wanted to write to you about the gospel, it was necessary instead for me to write to you, to urge you to contend, to contend for the faith. That's the reason for this letter. Jude is calling the church to action here. Contend for the faith, he says. Protect and defend the gospel because false teachers and false teachings have come in. Well, uh, we are certainly going to be talking about what it means to contend for the faith today. Uh, But before we actually get into explaining why we fight for the faith and how we fight for the faith, it's essential that we understand what this faith is. In other words, what are we actually contending for? And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to talk about the faith, and then we're going to talk about the necessity of our effort in contending for the faith. And then we're going to wrap things up today uh, with how we are to go about contending or fighting for that faith. Um, So first of all, uh, here's the question we have in front of us. What is the faith? Uh, What is the faith? This faith, uh, Jude says, was once for all delivered to the saints. And certainly, uh, what Jude has in mind here is not something vague, right? It's not a a generalized faith uh, faith, or whatever faith just happens to work for you in, in 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 a given notice or in a given moment, right? This is something very specific, Uh, When Jude says the faith, what he was referring to actually is an active and living trust in Jesus Christ as our only Savior, which is unchanging and complete. Uh, Let me say that again. When Jude says the faith, what I believe he is referring to is an active and living trust in Jesus Christ as our only Savior, which is unchanging and complete. Uh, You know, if you look at the dictionary, the definition of faith is the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And my point in sharing that is that regardless of where where you get your definition of faith from, we see that faith requires an object. Uh, That is, a person or a thing for which that trust has been placed in. Or another way to to think about this is that there is no such thing as a faith without an object. We must put our faith or trust in something or someone. And that trust must be more than just a statement. It actually has to be backed up by action. Uh, So for example, uh, think with me uh, about getting on an airplane. Uh, we might say that we trust that an airplane is safe. But if we never actually step onto an airplane, uh, we are not actually exercising faith that it is in fact safe, right? Um, So we put what we say in action by what we do. So following this analogy, uh, the moment that we do though, the moment that we do step onto a plane, Uh, we are actually exercising our faith and trust that the plane is safe, that it will take me where I need 
to go and it'll do what I am told it will do. Of course, uh, our purpose today is not to talk about uh, trusting in Korean Air or, or Delta Airlines. Uh, our purpose is to say that the faith is trusting Jesus as the ultimate center and object for our faith. For he alone is able to make us whole and set us, uh, place us in right standing with God and that faith should be exercised or demonstrated through our action. We see here in Jude, he describes this faith in verse 4 as the grace of God. And later in verse 21, we'll see he defines it as the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And this is the central tenet of Christianity. This is the faith. That Jesus Christ, who is himself God, came to live the perfect life that we could not. To die the death that we deserve to die because of our sins as our substitute. And to rise from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And he did that to offer us forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with God, and eternal life to all those who would place their faith in him. In other words, Jesus is not just a way to God among many, but he is the way to God. And he says exactly that in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The object of our faith matters. And if we are to be saved, it must be through faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our only substitute and means of forgiveness. And this is very important as well. Uh, notice again, Jude says, this faith uh, was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, this is so good right here. It might be my favorite part of the text. This phrase, once for all, it highlights the fact that this gospel, this truth, it is unchanging, it is complete, and it is settled. In other words, the faith, it is not evolving. It is not in process. You can't add to it and you can't subtract from it. It's not subjective. It's objective. It's finalized. It's finished. And this faith, the faith that was delivered, is the faith that saved yesterday. It saves today. And it will save forever. This faith. It came from God himself. It was delivered by God, and it was given to the saints. It was given to those uh, who were called, who were made righteous by their faith in Jesus Christ. And let's be clear. Uh, we are not born saints, and we cannot make ourselves saints. We cannot make ourselves holy. We can't make ourselves set apart and, and clean by our own efforts. Nor can we be uh, canonized, uh, canonized by, as a saint by the church. Right? No, we are reborn into this identity as saints. When God gives us a new heart and we respond to the gospel... We are adopted into his new family, and we are set apart by God, for God, in Jesus Christ. The faith is the active trust in Jesus Christ as our only Savior, 
which is unchanging and complete. So let me ask you today, is this your faith? Uh, is this faith uh, in Jesus, uh, is, it, is it true to you? Is it real to you? Is it, uh, is it leading to action? Is Jesus the, the object of your trust? Uh, is he the one who, who brings you the most joy? Uh, is he the one that you run to in times of sorrow? You know, many say that Jesus is their ultimate treasure. But does your life actually reflect what you say? Uh, has your faith, again, been put into action? Uh, I pray that each and every one of you listening here today can confidently say that he is my greatest treasure uh, and that you have placed your faith and your trust in him. So that's the faith that Jude and we have in focus here today. Uh, now let's turn to why it is necessary for us to contend for this faith. Why is it necessary to contend for the faith? Uh, I want us to, first of all, observe uh, the intensity and the urgency of the passage here. Look again at the beginning of verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And so we see the words here, very eager or necessary, or that word appealing, which can also mean uh, urging, or it can even mean begging. And then we, of course, see the word contend itself. And that, uh, that word contend here, uh, it means to strive or to struggle or even to agonize. It's something that would, in, would require intense vigilance. It was actually a term uh, that was most commonly used in the area of athletics or even in the military. And so you can imagine uh, with me, for example, uh, like Korea versus Japan in the World Cup in that moment right before kickoff. Or let's say uh, game seven of the NBA finals. Or maybe the, the Yankees versus the Red Sox for the league championship series. Right? Imagine the focus and intensity of that moment by the players right before things are about to tip off. Right? Or think about the soldier who's caught right in the middle of a battle, literally fighting uh, for his or her life. Uh, you, can, you can even just picture the, the heightened sense of alertness that they would have, right? The, the full focus. And that's the intensity for which Jude is urging you and I to contend for this faith. All of us are called to this, to guard and protect the gospel with vigilance. Um, we contend for the faith as if our very lives depend on it. Why? Because our eternal lives are at stake in what we believe. That's why this is necessary, because our eternal lives are at stake in what we believe. Uh, it's so important. And that's why this same urgency is seen all throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he uses the same word to Timothy, to, to fight, to contend. He tells young Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Or in Galatians, when there was another perversion of the gospel, Paul wrote to that church, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And that is a very similar language to what we see here in verse 4 of our Jude passage. Jude says that those who have come into the gathering perverting the gospel, these false teachers with their false teaching, Jude says, they are designated for condemnation. Why? Because literally life and death is at stake here. Our eternal lives are at stake in what we believe. That's why we must contend. That's why we must fight. Because to live without an active and living trust in Jesus Christ is exactly what it means to be condemned. There is no other faith. There is no other gospel. That's why this is necessary. That's why this is so important. And that's why this is so urgent. Uh, well, let's now uh, turn to, to more of the specifics of what was, what was happening. Like, who are these people? Uh, what were they doing? Uh, and what were they teaching? Right? What did they believe? We see this starting in verse 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And I, and I want to briefly stop right there. This is a really important detail, I think. Uh, these individuals have snuck in unseen, Jude says, which tells us that these threats are actually coming from within. That is, within the fellowship, within the gathering. These people are actually inside of the church. They are claiming to be Christian. They are with and amongst other believers, yet they are living apart from the gospel. And that's really important because I think for most of us, when we think about contending, when we think about defending the faith, we mostly think about people who are sort of like out there, right? Uh, it's for people who are, who are outside the church. And certainly we should be ready to defend the faith out there, if you will, uh, out there as well. But we, we can't miss this, right? That's not our only fight. We also have to be ready to contend within the gathering as well. And that's the context of Jude. And I'm sharing this uh, because I think we have to be very careful, or, or maybe I should say uh, very discerning about this. You see, uh, I don't want us to, be, uh, to, to unwisely apply this message to our non-Christian neighbors and co-workers who are first and foremost in need of the gospel proclaimed to them and the gospel explained to them. Uh, sure, you, you might have to carefully and lovingly uh, discuss some truth with them. There might be a little debate back and forth. But let's not assume that we should uh, just fight and contend strongly with every non-believer that we ever face. Right? There are times to contend for the gospel, to fight for the faith. And there are times to just proclaim and to share the gospel, and you need to be discerning when to do which. That's my point. Um, well, anyway, back to the text. People have crept in unnoticed. The threat is coming from within. Then it says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. So who are these people? Well, uh, Jew doesn't give us specific names, but he does give us some important information. Notice he calls them 
ungodly people. It's the same as saying uh, they are without worship, actually. Uh, in other words, they have no connection to God. This word ungodly, it, it refers to a total lack of reverence for God. Uh, it was actually the common word of the day for a heretic, which is exactly what these people were. They have no fear of God. They have no reverence for God. They have no adoration for the Lord. And certainly they have no love for him. They are just playing religion, if you will. And again, uh, remember, they are within the church. Well, then we get some insight into how they were living, their, their conduct, if you will. Because Jude says next, uh, for certain people have crept in, ungodly people. And what were they doing? It says, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. The bottom line here is that these people were uh, taking the teachings about the grace of God and making it an excuse to live however they wanted to live. Another term for this error is called, or it's been called, cheap grace. And again, it's, it's claiming that God's grace, his unmerited favor to us, is a license to do what we want whenever we want to do it. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his better-known books called uh, The Cost of Discipleship, I encourage you to read it, but he once wrote this about cheap grace in that book. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's these people here that Jude is writing about. They were living in excess. They were uh, totally given in to their flesh. They were unrestrained when it came to, go, uh, to going after their desires. All because of a perverted view of the grace of God. And we know, again, the direct context here is that these individuals are doing this because they're not believers, right? They are giving into their flesh over and over and over again because they are not redeemed. But certainly, uh, we have to understand, we can all, even those who are following Christ, we can all have a tendency to allow cheap grace to enter into our lives if we are not on guard. Uh, you see, when I believe that I know best how life works, uh, and when I believe that I know what's best for me, it's easy to allow cheap grace to enter into my life. When I think that way, it's easy to make excuses for, for doing what I want to do because I believe that I know what I need. And maybe you've been there before. Uh, you've been confronted with a potential sin, and you chose to go down the path of sin because you say to yourself, like, eh, it's just one time, right? And, and after all, I know God loves me and he'll just forgive me anyway, right? How many of you have done that? But, but when we do that, understand, that is a perversion of the gospel. That's cheap grace. And so personally, let me encourage you, fight that type of thinking, right? Fight that type of living, and here, Jude is strongly urging us to contend against those who are doing such things. 
So again, these people have crept inside the church. Uh, these false teachers, they are ungodly. They, they are twisting the grace of God so that they can live uh, however they want to live. And then Jude writes, they're also doing this. And they're denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so here's another problem with their teaching, another problem with their living or their theology. Um, They were denying Jesus as their master and their Lord. In other words, they would not live under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. And this has everything to do with obedience. The word master there is actually related to what we we saw last week in verse 1, where Jude calls himself a, a servant So whereas Jude was saying, Jesus is my master, and Jesus rules over me, he's my king, these people, on the contrary, uh, they show no respect to Jesus. They are, in effect, saying, uh, Jesus is not over me, right? It's a denial, a complete denial of Jesus' lordship, of Jesus' kingship. They will not, they're choosing to not submit to Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed king and the Messiah. And certainly we know, right, we cannot claim to follow Jesus with our words if we do not obey his commands to us in our actions. Jesus actually says this in Luke chapter 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which I say? Or in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Now, of course, we know we don't obey God's commands to earn his love. Even last week, we saw that in the first two verses of Jude, that before you did anything, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world. He sent his son, Jesus, to the cross for you as the ultimate demonstration of love. God the Father, in other words, he loves you apart from anything you could do or anything you've ever done. And so we don't obey God to earn his love, but rather we obey in response to God's love for us. Uh, This is called grace-motivated obedience, and it's the opposite of cheap grace. Going back to to Bonhoeffer, he actually calls this costly grace, right? Uh, It's the opposite of cheap grace. He writes this. He says, costly grace, on the other hand, uh, it's different than cheap grace. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. You see, living without obedience is a perversion of God's grace and a denial of Jesus as Lord. And that's exactly what these people who had crept into the church were doing. So we need to fight against any, any semblance of cheap grace. We need to combat and come against anything that even takes the appearance that we are on the throne of our lives or that we belong on the throne of our lives. The faith, the gospel demands 
that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is our master, and that we live our lives accordingly. So we've talked about the faith that we are fighting for. We've looked at why it's necessary to contend for it, as well as a little bit about the the people uh, uh, who were coming and perverting the gospel, what they were doing, what they were teaching inside of the church. And now let's close our time together today by talking about how we go about contending for the faith. Uh, How do we contend for the faith? There's really so much I could say uh, to this. There's so many applications. And we will actually discuss this uh, more and more as this series continues. But let me just uh, consider a few uh, of these things with you. Uh, First of all, let me say this. That if we're going to fight for the faith, we need to train ourselves. We need to train ourselves Uh, I mentioned before that the word contend is often used in the context of athletics or the military. And certainly we know that in both of those areas, uh, there's a lot of training that is involved. Uh, Professional athletes, for example, they spend millions and millions of dollars per year on their bodies. And the teams that they play for, they spend countless amounts of dollars as well on on things like trainers and experts and massage therapists and and coaches to be sure that these uh, athletes are prepared and ready to go for the game, right? And of course, we know here in Korea, just about every male is required to uh, train in the military, right? You're not just given a gun and told, good luck out there, right? right? That doesn't happen. No, you, you put in the time. You put in the effort. You do the training. So, so when or if the battle starts, you're, you're ready to go. And so I think it goes without saying, if we're going to defend the faith, if we're going to stand firm for the truth, we have to be prepared to do so. We have to train ourselves to contend. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What I'm trying to, to say is, if we want to contend for the gospel, we need to know the gospel. If we're going to uh, recognize truth from error, then we must be able to recognize truth, right? I need to get myself to a place where I'm able to recognize if something doesn't fit into the gospel. Because understand this as well, right? Many times, uh, false teaching is so subtle. It's not always just really overt. Sometimes it's so subtle. And so if I'm not close to Jesus, uh, if I'm not close to to the true gospel, it could actually be very easy for me to be persuaded away. This is why so many Christian cults thrive in our world because they teach so close to the truth. So so we need to be familiar with the truth so that we're able to contend for the truth. We need to be immersed in the gospel if we are going to defend the gospel. And so I encourage you uh, to do that to to regularly and faithfully sit under the preached word. Uh, Make it a priority to to listen to the gospel so that you may be uh, shaped by it. 
Also, uh, we certainly do this by our own personal study and, and devotions as well, right? We, we memorize the word, we meditate on the word, and we consider uh, how to live according to the word so that the word will shape our hearts and our minds. And we do this also together, right? We, we train together. That's why we have discipleship groups, to encourage each other through the word, to challenge each other by the word, so that we are corporately together, centered on the gospel. So if we want to contend for the gospel, we must train ourselves in the truth. We must know the gospel and then, and then second, if we want to contend for the faith, we must revel in the gospel. Or you could say we must cherish the gospel. Cherish the gospel. And what that means is we actually get to a place where we see the love of God in Christ applied to us personally. Right? It's, it's knowing that you have a good shepherd who knows you deeply and intimately. It's centering yourself again and again on what we talked about last week, that because of the graciousness of God, while you were dead in your sins, he called out to you, he desired you, and he loved you. It's hearing those truths that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your, on, uh, for your behalf and letting your heart be, be stirred by his amazing love, his mercy, and his grace. And that it's letting those affections motivate the way that you see God, the way that you see yourself, and then how you live your life. A person who revels or cherishes the gospel is a person who will live out the gospel, which is a defense in itself. And not, not only that, uh, a person who revels in the gospel is always a person who would be willing to stand for its truths. And then the final point I want to make uh, for us today, how do we contend for the faith? Uh, it's simply this, love people, or you could say, love the church. Love people, love the church. We know that the scriptures are so clear on this, that as followers of Christ, we are called to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that this love for one another can sometimes feel like contending, right? Uh, but we do this for our good, uh, for the good of others and the good of the whole body, the good of the church. We actually see a great example of this in Galatians chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul confronts uh, the Apostle Peter in his sin. Uh, Paul recounts the scene this way. Look at it. Galatians 2, it starts in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul's talking here, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles 
to live like Jews. So we see here that Paul is contending with Peter because his actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so it was Paul in in love confronting Peter for his own sake as well as for the sake of the entire church. We need to contend for the faith. And we are all called to contend for the faith. And so for some of us, uh, you already do that. And you just need a reminding today uh, that contending should be done in love. That in contending, we should be Christ-like. We should be peaceable, self-control. We speak hard truths in love. Uh, I read one commentator say, we contend without being contentious. We contend without being contentious. But for others of us, uh, we need to be reminded that this is something that we should actually be doing. Uh, we should all be contending for the faith. That like this, this hands-off uh, approach within the church, like you do you, and you know what, what's good for you works for you, and I'm not going to touch that. Right? That's not godly love. And so we need to be willing to call out sin. We need to be willing to call out false doctrine for the good of others and for the good of the church. And so church family, uh, motivated by God's love, let's fight for one another. Let's fight against pride. Let's fight against passivity. Let's call out cheap grace or, or any uh, gospel message that even hints at denying the complete lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's earnestly and, and passionately contend for the faith by knowing the gospel, by cherishing the gospel, and by loving others, by loving the church, all for our joy and his glory. Well, uh, we're going to close our time uh, together with one last song. But before we sing, uh, let me pray for us.